Hello, What's the Res listeners, this is Josh Herring, and today I want to do a special introduction to the upcoming episode. This past week, I've been in Macosta, Michigan at uh, the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. And Dr. Russell Kirk was a very influential American scholar. He was key, uh, a key part of the intellectual conservative movement of the 20th century. He's really fallen out of favor with academia today. He's not very well known in the 21st century. Hillsdale College professor Bradley Berzer recently wrote a new biography of Russell Kirk that received a lot of critical acclaim, and Dr. Kirk's work is experiencing a little bit of a revival. Uh, In my PhD program, uh, there was an opportunity to take a seminar on the life and writings of Russell Kirk. For that seminar, we read a 500-page collection of his essays and then spent three days together face-to-face at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. The Kirk Center is based out of Russell Kirk's home in Macosta, Michigan. It's a very small town, and uh, the Kirk family still lives there, uh, chiefly Mrs. Annette Kirk, and then her children are uh, around the world, but they still call that place home, and occasionally they visit there with uh, with, uh, Mrs. Kirk's grandchildren. Dr. Kirk died in 1994, uh, but his work was pretty substantial. He was the author of over 30 books and hundreds of articles, all trying to convey a certain set of ideas and to articulate the, the best way forward for American politics. Now, alongside American politics, he argues for many, many other things, and Mrs. Kirk is going to do that in some of this uh, interview. But I had the opportunity to sit down with Mrs. Kirk and get some of her story as the wife of Dr. Kirk and how they met, but also to learn about Dr. Kirk's experiences as a debater. So this episode is one of our uh, attempts to explore what happens when people experience the transformative power of competitive debate, and then where do they go from there? For Dr. Kirk, he had that experience in high school and in college, and it was truly powerful and affected him in ways that no one could have predicted. So I hope you enjoy, and uh, uh, yeah, let us know what you think. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. As you know, uh, we are on our summer series of episodes, and we wish the best of luck to folks who are heading off to nationals at the NSDA. Today is a very special episode. I am sitting in Russell Kirk's house in Piety Hill. Uh, in Macosta, Michigan with Mrs. Annette Kirk and uh, tonight I'm going to get to interview her all about uh, Dr. Kirk and uh, the things he thought were important and were worth defending and particularly uh, the importance of debate for Dr. Kirk. So uh, Mrs. Kirk, thank you so much for being willing to do an interview with us tonight. Welcome to What's the Res. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I have to tell you, I am just so grateful for the way that you have welcomed us in. I know it's it can't be easy to have a group of, I don't know, 15, uh, 15 doctoral students come into your home, and you have been so gracious to us uh, this week. And it, it seems to me that your hospitality is just uh, fantastic. And it makes me wonder, is, was, was hospitality important for Dr. Kirk as well? Yes. Russell loved having guests. People thought he was very quiet, and, uh, and that was somewhat true. However, when he was uh, with guests, 
he loved to tell stories. And so he's really in his element when after dinner, he would sit by the fireplace and start spinning uh, all kinds of tales. Some of them he made up and some of them he would read. He read every night to the children and then went off to work about 10 o'clock at night and worked through the night. And that's how he had the time to entertain people during the day as well as chop wood or take walks and, and do things and make use of the light so that at night he would uh, be able to have the quiet uh, in this little village of only 400 and some people uh, where his ancestors founded in 1878. And that's why we're here. Man, it is an absolutely beautiful place to be. I, I'm, I'm sure it was a wonderful place to raise a family, and, and I'm, gl I'm glad to see it's still a great place for a family to gather together. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we've had many, many guests over the years, and uh, about 1973, we started having seminars, and they were from, mainly, uh, came from uh, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, mm. and they send, uh, sent a lot of people here over the years. We had about five of them a year for, from 73 to about um, 2013, and then they uh, decided to uh, go elsewhere to have them, and uh, simultaneously, lots of other people started coming. So it means that, and, and the reason they decided to go elsewhere was that they saw the bonding that took place here. And so uh, they, in a country house, rather than a hotel, mm. and uh, how the students love to uh, be here and come back, and it felt much more homelike. So what they are doing is building a headquarters in uh, Delaware at their national, um, their offices. And okay. so that is where the students will now come rather than going, staying in either hotels or even coming here. Uh, some of the students still do come, of course, but uh, not as many as used to in the old days because they will now have their own headquarters uh, oh. to have the, uh, the seminars. Well, there's certainly something really special about being able to have seminars in a homier setting than, than the cold, austere uh, anonymity of a hotel, that's for it's sure. very true. Oh, I, I've very much enjoyed the uh, the opportunity to read a lot more of Dr. Kirk's work with the uh, the class this summer. We've been we required we were reading the uh, the essential Russell Kirk yes. and all the essays in there. And I knew of Dr. Kirk from my years at Hillsdale College. And uh, oh yeah, I went to Hillsdale. I was oh, uh, I, I, I was there realize. from. 2007, 2011. Um, I see. I, uh, I, I at least I took one class with Dr. Berzer, and yes. I've, I've tracked with him over the years as he was working on on his Kirk biography. And, right. Uh, but I, I just loved getting the chance to actually get to read a lot more of his work, mm -hmm. and I, it seems to me and uh, that Dr. Kirk spent a lot of his life arguing, writing, and debating about his convictions. He did. Could Could you share with us what some of his most important convictions were? Well, his uh, most important convictions are probably in his uh, six canons of conservatism that he lists in the conservative mind. In uh, later years, he extended that to ten uh, principles. Uh, so you can mention them in different ways, and they need a lot of uh, discussion and exploring when you mention them. The very first one, of course, to my mind, is the most important, and that is that there's a transcendent order to which we must adhere. Russell was very fond of using the word order as opposed to the word liberty or freedom. Mm. Uh, when he used order, uh, rather freedom or liberty, he always said ordered liberty or ordered freedom 
because he felt that unless you qualified it, it could turn into disorder or freedom becoming libertinism or uh, something a little more radical. Uh, people can mean many things by freedom. Uh, so that was one of the key points of Russell's thought, was that their order is the first need of all. And then after that, uh, the permanent things were extremely important, and that's another uh, phrase that could be debated endlessly, what are the permanent <laughs> things. There, uh, Some people think of them as faith, hope, and charity, and some of them people think of them as uh, of being uh, self-discipline and you know things like that that would um, lead us to uh, being able to have order again in our lives. But... Um, these are just some of the teachings of Russell. He was very fond of the word, the moral imagination. Uh, he felt that that should uh, infuse learning of uh, particularly uh, young people, and uh, lots more. Ah, oh, those are those those are some great ideas. I know I've, I've benefited a lot from being able to discuss those ideas with other folks this week, and it, it it's great to see that his ideas are still carrying on uh, even after his entry into eternity. Mm -hmm. Well. I know last night we got to talking a little bit, and uh, you shared with me something I didn't know about Dr. Kirk, and that was uh, the fact that uh, he was a high school debater and, and also mm -hmm. debated in college. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what, uh, what role did that play in, in his uh, teenage years, I guess? Well, I think it was very essential to his formation because he was a very shy person, particularly in high school, and this meant that that got him out uh, into the world as well as out of himself in some ways to uh, be able to uh, engage others in civil conversation and uh, debates have to be organized, they have to be thought through, you have to be logical about them, you have to make your points and uh, he enjoyed that uh, and so the debate team in both high school and college was a absolutely I would say one of the most important things that he engaged in that helped him to develop later as a writer, thinker, and continuing uh, speaker. Uh, he went on, it also got him on trips outside of his little town, which he would not have probably been able to do in those days. And so even when, after we were married and we went north up to uh, Leelanau Peninsula, those places, he would say, I remember so vividly coming here when I was 16 years old. And uh, it, it uh, was very much uh, a memorable and nostalgic occasion for him. So debating was so important for him to organize his thoughts. Mm. And uh, also he bonded with the other students, was part of a team taught him team effort. Uh, I just can't think of anything more essential to a person who's going to be ha have a, a public position. And uh, the, he deba over the years, he debated um, major people. Uh, in the 60s, uh, he had um, a debate with Kunstler, the lawyer at Kent State, uh, in the big uh, gym. Uh, I was a little worried about that one because it was the 60s and it was pretty violent time. And uh, was that before he, or after the Kent State shootings? That was after the Kent okay. State shootings. And uh, then he debated Tom Hayden at the University of Michigan and uh, Malcolm X. And uh, he 
just took on all these various people, and and they it was they were very civilly uh, organized these debates, and even with these radicals, they still turned out to be very civil. Russell had a presence about himself, so that he uh, made other people. Um, feel as if they had to respect him. <laughs> Not mm. that he worked at it, it was just a natural thing that uh, his demeanor and the way he was and the way he spoke to them very respectfully. And uh, so I think that helped. One of the most important things was not exactly a debate but a discussion with Arthur Schlesinger Jr. who was his counterpart in uh, the 60s uh, whenever anyone wanted to have a conservative liberal debate. It was always Russell representing the conservatives and Arthur Schlesinger representing the liberals. And they were both intellectuals and in those days they called intellectuals eggheads. And uh, <laughs> so I guess they were. And uh, uh, I have about an hour and a half tape which I must get uh, uh, polished up and um, uh, presented someplace, uh, put on, posted I guess you say. And sure. uh, someplace because uh, it's, uh, they're discussing uh, the cycles of history. They're sitting before a fireplace, both with their cigars, and very civilly discussing uh, what are the cycles of history. And what's interesting is that Schlesinger thought that we were just going to have the same cycles, and they would keep repeating themselves. And Russell said, do you think it's possible that some event could intervene in history and that these cycles could be changed and challenged. And it was interesting that he, the conservative, thought that there could be something changing, as it were, in history, whereas Schlesinger, the liberal, did not think that. Oh, that's very interesting. So I, was, I think he hmm. sort of um, uh, prophesied or whatever some of the things that are happening politically today. Interesting. There's a that, and I know that that idea of change with continuity was a major part of his thinking, and that uh, if I remember the line, change is necessary for the preservation of a society, was one of the big ideas exactly. that we dealt with this week. Which he got from Burke, of course, Edmund Burke. Of course, yes. as, as all the best ideas. Apparently, Burke and uh, T. S. Eliot are exactly. the ultimate sources <laughs> of the best ideas. Right. Those were the two uh, mentors that he uh, very much appreciated. Well, I think it's really interesting that Dr. Kirk spent so much of his time in these public venues. Uh, and I, I'm assuming, I mean, I, as far as I know, the names that you mentioned I recognize, they didn't change their positions but on, on those issues. But why would Dr. Kirk go engage these people in public debate? What was his goal in doing that? Well, it actually was probably, uh, I mean, um, he, he enjoyed debating. Uh, and uh, tried to persuade the art of persuasion, uh, but also because these were venues that many people came to, and even if he didn't persuade the other person, he possibly could persuade the audience. And so that was really his, uh, uh, his aim, because he knew he was definitely not going to persuade uh, some radical to be a conservative. I, I don't see Malcolm X changing no. his position no. and adopting traditional conservatism. No, not at all. But at the same time, he got along very well, strange to say, with Malcolm X. Interesting. And uh, they found uh, certain areas that they were both uh, keen on, uh, the small is beautiful type of thing and, and uh, sort of uh, the little platoon you belong to. And mm -hmm. I think it was kind of something that almost all people can agree on. So he would always look for those points of agreement 
uh, of a very personal and uh, nature so that uh, he could somewhat reach across the platform and bond with the person and they could appreciate each other's position without uh, making each other seem like uh, um, you know, there's Satan, uh, <laughs> right? Right, or the devil, right. And the devil incarnate. I think that's very interesting because one of the uh, one of the tensions that I see in contemporary competitive debate is the temptation to look at debate as being all about winning against the opponent. Right. And but I, I like to remind my students that when you are debating in public whether that's in front of one judge or whether that's in front of a panel uh, or there's there's often sometimes parents and siblings that will come watch, you actually are engaging in an act of public persuasion. You just yes. might convince the audience. Yes. yes. And that seems very interesting to me that he was looking to, that this was, a, this was really an educational endeavor exactly. for the audience. Right. Yes. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Well, now... Let me ask you a couple, uh, I know we're running uh, probably towards the end of our time tonight, but let me ask you a couple more questions at least. Sure. Um, one of the dangers that I sometimes see in competitive debate, because you have to be able to, at the drop of a hat, flip to the other side and debate the other position, huh. is that it seems to sometimes be a little bit sophistic. I mean, that you yes. can, you, yeah. it's easy to lose, lose, lose a tight hold on truth. But over the past year, I've had a few students who are really falling in love with debate and they're also really starting to try to seek truth with the life of the mind. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice that you would offer them as they are trying to figure out what things are actually true and how to defend those? Do you have any advice that you'd offer them from the life of Dr. Kirk? Personally, I would always have a problem trying to debate something I didn't really believe in. And I always thought that was um, the hardest part of debating would be to switch sides and to debate... Uh, something that I, I didn't think was good uh, or true or beautiful. And so, um, but I know that that's a technique and that people do have to do that. So I suppose if you have to do it, you look for what is the best thing in that other side. <laughs> and so that you, it teaches you not to demonize perhaps the other side by trying to find some common ground uh, that you do believe in and emphasizing that point. Uh, but as far as trying to uh, give advice to young people about debate, uh, the only thing I guess I can say is that it was uh, so uh, wonderful a thing in Russell's life and, and helped him uh, to sharpen his arguments and his mind that I, I just recommend it highly to any a high school or college student as one of the ways to really uh, uh, persuade others as well as come to understanding of truth yourself. And the way to find that, probably the best way, is research. Uh, the research has to be um, very deep and thorough and that would be that you have to go to the proper sources uh, always cite, uh, extremely important to cite because you give credibility to your position if you cite where you found that uh, information. So I, I think that's uh, being a good researcher is probably as important as being a good debater. 
Uh, those certainly are all, those are all things I know Dr. Kirk's writings are filled with. And uh, one of the things that I found most encouraging about his writings was that he's always, he always managed to find the positive side uh, to the end. And almost all of his essays had this pattern where they would describe a, a very accurate, very realistic, negative portrayal of some aspect that he was analyzing. But then he would, he would have this turn, and he would turn towards this hopeful, yes. but all is not lost sort of right. tone. And he would say, let cheerfulness break through. Mm. That was a constant uh, refrain, uh, because uh, he, he did understand that people would tend to uh, get depressed about modern society or... Uh, the the types of things that are going on today and it's just like the news so much of the news you read is negative mm. and uh, instead of having more positive I think that's just the natural tendency of people to obviously say what's wrong with the world rather than what's right with the world uh, but he always uh, had as you say that twist at the end that uh, engaged uh, the person to uh, reach his heart Mm. Not just his head, which all during the debate he was trying to reach. <laughs> his heart, I mean his head, and, and feelings too. Emotions are extremely important in debate. You have to reach not only the facts, and, but also um, how the person responds emotionally to uh, your argument. And uh, finally at the end, I think it's a very good practice uh, to um, leave people with some kind of uplifting uh, thought for the hmm. day. Those are those are great pieces of advice. Now the uh, I, I do have one last question, and and uh, I'm happy to edit this out if if, if you don't like mm -hmm. this question, that's fine. Uh, but <laughs> with that being said, yes, I, I don't think we could have this interview without uh, you giving us a, a more personal view of Dr. Kirk, and I, I really appreciate how you've helped us see him as a person. Uh, there, there's one story I'd love to, to ask you for, if you're willing to share it with us. Um, how exactly did you and Dr. Kirk meet, and, and how did that grow into a beautiful marriage that uh, lasted for, I think you said, 30 years the other day? And, and, yes. and clearly that, that those effects continue on in your life to this day. Is that, is that a story you'd be willing to share with us? Sure. Um, it depends on how long you uh, have to take. That's at your I'll, discretion. I'll do the Kirk. most brief description I can, and that is in 1960... I uh, was on a platform in New York with a group of students and we were discussing Russell Kirk's book, The American Cause. And uh, it wasn't exactly a debate. What we were discussing, its pros or if there were any cons and, and what we thought about it. And so it was a, a student dis panel discussion. And Russell happened to be in the audience because he was in New York to visit that time. And the people who were sponsoring this event knew that he was going to be there and why they selected that date for uh, the panel. And then I met him at lunchtime afterward. I was just a junior in college and so had no understanding or thoughts, rather, of, of ever uh, it, uh, knowing him more than just that one day. And, uh, however, that was in 1960, and it was the time of the beginning of the young conservative movement. And so that summer, ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, had a, their very first summer school at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. Mm. And for a week, Russell discussed history. And so I got invited 
uh, to that conference as a young student uh, leader in, in uh, New York. I was president of my student body and so consequently was invited and went and so I got to know Russell during that whole week a little bit better. But then I, um, as I say, in this position of leadership in this uh, uh, early conservative movement, I uh, was able to get him invited to all the colleges in New York uh, to speak. And so I became his unofficial lecture agent that next year, my senior year, and met him at the airport often and took him to uh, various places to speak and did the publicity and sometimes even introduced him and got him back to the airport. And so this went on uh, all that year. And then um, I went to uh, Sharon, Connecticut, where, uh, at Buckley's home, where we uh, wrote the Sharon Statement, which is now being used in many textbooks as uh, contrasted with the Port Huron Statement. Hmm. Uh, and it shows the two tensions at the time between the liberal and conservative youth movements. And uh, so, uh, Russell was then involved in that whole area where Goldwater became uh, the candidate for president and uh, those of us who founded Young Americas of Freedom at Sharon, Connecticut with the Sharon Statement uh, started having gatherings in New York City at Manhattan Center and Madison Square Garden uh, with thousands of people coming to those events and Russell would often come. Uh, he was given a prize or an award at one of those gatherings, and I would arrange to, again, uh, bring him there. And, uh, and he introduced me then to his friends in New York, and so then I became associated with those people. And uh, one thing after the other, after some period of years, led to the other. And uh, he began, after I graduated from college, started writing me, said that his newspaper column uh, in 1962, which he began, uh, was um, I was as important as his newspaper column, and so consequently <laughs> he would write me as many days a week as he was writing his newspaper column, and uh, that was five days a week. So five letters a week. He would write me five letters a week, whereas you know <laughs> I was teaching. I had no time to write. I didn't think I don't know where he got the time, but I didn't have the time. So I I replied maybe once a week, but. Uh, at any rate, and one can really learn about another through letters. Hmm. Now today it's all email, which means that they're not full sentences and people use you, the word, the letter U for Y-O-U, and then they don't capitalize things or such. So it's not very helpful for learning good uh, writing habits. However, um, I guess it gets back and forth quicker, uh, but in our instance, in our day, writing real letters, you had to post them, put them in the mail, and then they came a few days later, and um, it, it lengthened things, it slowed mm. it down, as opposed to today when everything is instantaneous reactions. So you could think more when you were writing, because if you are just writing on email, uh, it's all fast and quick, whereas if you are writing a real letter, uh, you're going to be more reflective and meditative about it. And so those letters were very meditative, and I got to know him, who was a bit of a shy person, uh, better through letters than even when he was, in, was present. And so that was an interesting part of our uh, going together, if you want to call it that. It wasn't exactly that. And so that... Um, Finally, um, he, it, it, I was pretty well aware that he wanted to 
marry me and and I had gone with a friend to uh, Europe and he met us there and took us all around and then my friend and I <clears throat> came to Macasta and we saw how he lived here and got to know him better over this period of time and so finally in uh, 1964 March I, I uh, realized how much I really was in love with him and I knew he was in love with me that I wrote him a letter and said our marriage is inevitable and uh, he wrote back very amusingly yes inevitable sounded so awful uh, inevitable like uh, death and taxes so he had a very strange courtship it's <laughs> kind of a bit of old-fashioned uh, but yet uh, we um, uh, it somehow worked in the modern world and uh, so then we were married some months later and uh, we were married for 30 years and had four daughters and I now have 12 grandchildren and I helped him with his work all the years that we were uh, married and it was a very stimulating, interesting um, experience being married to him. That's a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. I think uh, I, I know many of my students, uh, do, they, they sadly do not know the lost art of letter writing. And I think that, that's something that uh, maybe some of them will be inspired to actually take a little bit more time in, in their written communication uh, because mm -hmm. of... Well, Mrs. Kirk, thank you so much for letting us uh, participate for a few days in uh, the life here at Piety Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I know a lot of your work today uh, is, is connected to the Kirk Center. Uh, are there any places in particular you might recommend our audience uh, go to to check out the work of the Kirk Center or, or learn more about Dr. Kirk? Yes. Uh, we founded the Russell Kirk Center after Russell died in 1994, and the following year we founded in '95. And it is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit public foundation. And we have a website, which is uh, kirkcenter.org. And there you will find a list of our programs and the types of things we do here, uh, seminars and uh, fellowships and um, translations of his work uh, are being done all over the, the world. And uh, so you can read all about that there and see the photos of some of our uh, events here, as well as links to uh, some of the discussions and debates that have held even elsewhere that we do. We have a Kirk on campus, <clears throat> which brings us to campuses throughout the United States. And we have a Society for Law and Culture that we have. And uh, so there are new programs developing all the time. And, uh, I'm very uh, grateful for the support I have from both my family and all of those fellows that have been here since we started the fellowship program in 1979. Fantastic. Well, we'll be sure to put kirkcenter.org in the show notes so that anybody who's listening to this, if they want to check that out and uh, maybe support the Kirk Center, they'll have easy access to that link. Well, Mrs. Kirk, thank you again for joining us on the show tonight. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this special summer episode of What's the Res? This has been an episode focusing on what happens next in the life of a debater. Uh, Dr. Russell Kirk was a uh, shy high school student who tried out for the debate team and discovered that he had a gift for eloquent expression and uh, tight research and uh, quick communication. Uh, I think 
I heard as well. I think last night you told me that uh, one of his initial problems was he spoke too fast when he yes. was debating. Is that yes, right? Yes, he did. He had to slow down. Well, one of the changes that's happened in competitive debate from then till now is that uh, actually speaking quickly is now something that uh, we have to caution students against because it's a it's a winning trick. They try to speak so fast they get out so many arguments that the other team can't answer back. Oh, interesting. So, it, but uh, it, it, he he was ahead of his time in, in, in that way as well. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, if you've enjoyed uh, what you've heard here tonight, uh, then you can please do head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. That's the best way for people to uh, find our show. If you want to uh, see more of What's the Res or uh, follow the different events that we've got going on, you can check those out at www.whatstherez.com or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstherez. Or on Facebook, or I'm sorry, or on Instagram or Twitter at what's the res underscore. And uh, do be sure to follow uh, follow us, and we'll have uh, some special announcements coming up very soon, in, early in July. And until then, work hard, speak well, and seek truth. <laughs>